All right, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 23 through 41. If you don't have a Bible, I won't be offended if you could look at one on your phone. And we'll also have the text on the screen. We're, we're, um, we're still in Acts. Um, but I promise you, sometime in fall, we will move on to a different series. And I will give myself maybe... I didn't say fall 2022 either, you notice. But anyway, um, let's pray before we begin. Jesus, I pray that through your word this morning we would encounter you. I pray that you would wake us up out of our frequent stupor, that you would, you would point to things in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our community that you want to redeem. Make us open to the word right now and give us, give me clarity and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, over the years, I've had a lot of time uh, to reflect on the meaning of, uh, of children's books because I've been reading children's books for a really long time. And, you know, some of them have pretty deep messages. For instance, uh, The Cat in the Hat. That's an old favorite. Everybody knows the cat in the hat. You remember, it starts out, the sun did not shine. Right? Remember that, that bit? Uh, it was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally. We sat there, we too. And I said, how I wish we had something to do. Maybe I've read this a few times. Too wet to go out and too cold to play ball. So we sat in the house. We did nothing at all. All we could do was to sit, 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 sit. And we did not like it, not one little bit. So you have these kids complacent, stagnant, stuck, don't know what to do. And they do not like it one little bit. What happens next? Anybody know? Then something went bump. How that bump made us jump. We looked and we saw him step in on the mat. We looked and we saw him, the cat in the hat. And he said to us, why do you sit there like that? I know it is wet and the sun is not sunny, but we could have lots of good fun that is funny. <laughs> I know some new games, said the cat. I know some new tricks of the cat, and I had a lot of good tricks. I will show them to you. Your mother will not mind at all if I do. I could keep going. <laughs> but the cat in the hat comes in to this dreary, stagnant, complacent place. And what does he do? He unleashes absolute chaos in it. He picks up their fish. That's the first game he plays, up, up, up with a fish, and he hops on a ball. He wrecks half the house. Then he unleashes thing one and thing two. He's like, why do you have even more fun thing one and thing two? And thing one and thing two start wrecking the rest of the house, and it makes the, the children get up, get engaged. They have to like, they're like, okay, mom's going to kill us if she sees the house. And, and so, so they, they have to figure out a plan to like get rid of the cat and the hat and thing one and thing two, which they do. And then they're looking around saying, look at this chaos. Mom, mom's, good, mom's coming home and this place is a wreck. And, but what does the cat do? He comes right back in. He cleans everything up. So there's ultimately no harm done. But what does he do? He comes in and he disrupts this stagnant complacency they have. Yes, he throw things, throws things out of order. Yes, things get messy. But ultimately, it's redemptive. It's a redemptive disruption. We so easily get complacent. You know how you get complacent? I don't even know. It just happens. One day, you wake up and say... I'm living with no purpose. 
I feel like I've got no direction. I feel like I go one day to the next just going through the motions. Well, it's true spiritually. Yeah, I grew spiritually sometime in my 20s. I called it good then. <laughs> like, that's complacent. It's true in terms of our purpose. A lot of the time, we, we, we go to work, we go home, do what we need to do at home, go back to work, and we're like, what is this all amounting to? It's very easy to become complacent and stagnant and sort of just wander from day to day without any feeling of vitality or purpose. All there is is to sit, 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 sit. And we do not like it, not one little bit. You know what we need? We need the bump to make us jump. We need the redemptive disruption. We need something to shake us out, to rattle our cage, to wake us up out of our stupor. How can we get one? Where can we find it? Well, today in our, our text in Acts chapter 19, verses 23, we're going to see what happens when the gospel encounters the world. Verse 23 says, About this time there arose no little disturbance. Ooh, disturbance. That's promising for a redemptive disruption. So far, so good. There, there arose a disturbance concerning the way. Now that refers, that's what they called Christianity in the early days, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. All right, so most of that, if you don't know a whole lot about the ancient world and ancient Ephesus, that's incomprehensible. So let's explain. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys what is now Turkey, what was then Asia. Uh, and he's been in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel for a couple of years now, and there is quite a well-established uh, church and, and movement following Jesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Okay? It was a Greco-Roman city, formerly a, a, a Phrygian, I believe, city. And, um, and it was the number two city in that entire region. And the, sort of the crown on top of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. Right? Artemis was one of the, the ancient pagan goddesses. Some, uh, some ancient sources say that, that Ephesian Artemis was a mother goddess. Others, that she was a virgin huntress. I don't know. She was a big deal, though. Okay? And this temple, the Artemis Temple of Ephesus... It, it, it was called one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world. You, you to, we don't really have anything like it today. You have to imagine, it's, a, it's an architectural marvel. It was beautiful and it was huge. It was, it was three times the size of, of the Parthenon in Athens. Um, and and so, so you have to imagine, like, you know, what, what's the skyscraper in Abu Dhabi? whatever it is, I don't know, that thing. You have to take that building. And then it's also one of the most important religious buildings. So roll in like, you know, Mecca, St. Peter's, Mile High Stadium, you know, it's that, that, it's both of those things. Plus, it was a major economic driver. It generated wealth for the entire city, so it's like the New York Stock Exchange too. And it, 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 it made people proud to be a citizen of Ephesus. This, this building, it can't be overstated, the importance of it. And this guy, Demetrius, is a silversmith, and he made 
uh, idols of Artemis, right? These sort of like these souvenir uh, um, shrines to Artemis that the people who come from miles and miles around to worship Artemis at the temple, they, they could take one home, and these guys made bank off of it. Okay, so here's where the trouble begins, is that he sees these Christians no longer worship Artemis or buy things from him. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a disruption happening. Uh, so he gathers the craftsmen together, and he, 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 he appeals to their economic interests. Look at verse 25. It says, Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So, you know, he appeals to their economic interests, but then he's skillful enough to kind of cover the, the outright, like, hey, we need our money, um, with kind of more crowd-pleasing reasons. Um, he says, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, right? So we're saying that this, this, this gospel thing, it disrupts our business. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, right? So he's like, hey, you care about your reputation, right? Well, that's a threat. He says, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. You care about the temple, right? And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You care about Artemis, don't you? You're a good Ephesian. Who's with me? Rise up, right? And so we see that they do. So he's like, this is, this is pretty good demagoguery if you think about it. He's like, hey, your money's a threat. But also your reputation and your money and the temple, your money, and Artemis, let's get loud. And so we see what happens in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So uh, I've actually been to the city of Ephesus, and the, the market, they have a really big market. They did a lot of trade. This is called the Agora. That's the Greek word for it. And the theater is literally attached to the Agora. So you can imagine in, in the marketplace, and we know this was a market day, that means all the farmers that surround Ephesus were in the market that day. So it was extra crowded. Demetrius picks a good place to start a riot. Ancient Ephesus was known for its riots. It took very little to make ancient people turn into a mob. In fact, um, this is funny, the, the ancient city of Alexandria, the mob was so violent, they were included as part of the regular armed forces. Right? Just, <laughs> it was a branch. So these things could get out of hand pretty quick, and Demetrius is counting on it, okay? Um, it says, but when Paul wished to go in, a, in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Real quick, the, the Asiarchs, these were uh, the keepers of the imperial cult. They worshiped the emperor in, in Asia, and so that's what these guys were, and they were friends of Paul. Paul, like, wants to go preach the gospel. They're like, no, <laughs> you don't want to go in there. You won't come out. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But then when, when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So Luke does a great job just describing the disruption and chaos, right? Like a lot of people are just in the, in the agora, get swept into the theater like, what's going on? What? Hey, who, what? Why are we here? And, 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 and the, the, the poor Jews are like, like, hey, Alexander, get up and, and say we're not with Paul. And he tries to like probably that's what he was going to say is, don't blame us, <laughs> you know. Um, but he doesn't even get a word out. And this crowd for two hours chants, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. That means they're losing it. They're in a frenzy. What happens next? If you are just an ordinary Ephesian that wants to, to escape the, the riots, or if, even worse, if you're a Christian or a Jew, this is a tense moment, isn't it? Well, the tension is dispelled by cooler heads in verse 35. It says, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? We really don't know what that is, but they did. And, and Luke expected his readers to. Uh, interestingly, this is a quick aside. As we've been going through Acts, we've been keeping tabs on Luke as historian. Um, the, the word that he uses that gets translated town clerk, this was a very specific uh, word for the office. He was a high-ranking magistrate in Ephesus. They only used it in this part of Asia and only in the first and second century. Okay? So it's like somebody writing a, writing a history um, and they get, you know, they, they call, they don't call, um, they don't call the, uh, what, do, what do you call the refs in football? Umps, right? Yeah, you're supposed to call, I'm confused on this. Oh, you call baseball umpires. Yeah, and, and you score touchdowns. <laughs> so if someone's writing like a history of baseball, right, if they were very distant and didn't know what they were talking about, they might call umps refs or refs umps, right? But it's like getting that right. It means that he's been there at this time and, and he knows that this, the, the, the correct word for the town clerk. That was longer than I wanted to spend on that. But the fun part is that as we've gone through Acts, and every time we can check uh, Luke's accuracy, he comes out smelling like a rose. He's quite a good historian. Um, okay, so this town clerk, he calms everybody down. He's like, hey, hey, Artemis is still ascendant. Don't worry, don't worry. Uh, you know, everybody still loves her and loves us. All right, he says, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. This is how we know it's a market day. On market day, the courts were open. You could just, if you had a problem with somebody else, you could take them to court. Right? So he's like, hey, we don't riot. We, we go to the proconsuls, we go to the courts. He says, if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. He's saying, we get together in this theater for called meetings, right? If you can't work it out at the courts, work it out here. He says, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. The Romans did not like public disorder. They were, the, the garrison was about to come out in full force and crack down on this brutally, and the town clerk's like, hey, mm -mm, mm -mm, 
don't want to do this. Okay, so, so he disperses the crowd. There's a little bit of irony here in that Demetrius was more right than him. That in fact, as the gospel did indeed take hold, that people did turn away from Artemis and the temple and the rest of it and turned to Jesus. But what we see here, what we see here in, in, at, at the level of the city, and it's a pattern that repeats, is that the gospel isn't just like a, it doesn't just come in and not disturb anything. Think about what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of the new creation in Jesus Christ. And it bumps up against the old creation. And what it does, there's disruption. It should be expected. How could the gospel go to a place and take hold in a place like Ephesus and make no changes and challenge nothing? In fact, if there's a version of the gospel that doesn't ruffle any feathers or kick up any dust, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God became a man, went to a cross for you and me, and rose again from the dead, initiating the new creation. The gospel is redemptive disruption. That's true globally. If the gospel is adopted globally, it will disrupt the systems of the world. It can be true in a society, right? Like, you can't adopt the gospel as a society and make no changes and never be challenged. It's true in a community. It's also true personally. If we are truly receiving the gospel, it's going to disrupt us. It's going to take us out of complacency. In fact, and, and we, we, this, we don't always maintain this, we do very easily fall into complacency. But the way to get out of complacency is to receive this disruption of the gospel. Now, how does the gospel disrupt us? We're gonna, there's many ways it does. We can make a very long list. I'm going to limit the, the disruptions to the ones we see in the text today. And first of all, it disrupts us spiritually. It disrupts us spiritually. You know, in, in Ephesus, they had a pagan system. And I, I'm not going to pick on paganism in particular, but, but kind of the way paganism worked is that there was a bunch of gods who had stuff you wanted. And if they didn't like you, then they would send curses your way. And if you made them happy, right, you made sacrifices to them, you were devoted to them, they would, they would look favorably on you and, you know... Make sure that your pigs don't die or that your wife gets pregnant or that your ship doesn't sink. That, that's what they were there for, right? They're happy with you. No curse. Stuff you want instead. But you've got to sacrifice, right? That, and it must be said, that describes basically every religion in the world. Be very good. Make the God happy. Do the things the God likes, and the God will give you good things and hold back the bad things. The gospel comes in and turns that on its head. It says, it says, God sacrificed for you, sacrificed himself for you. That even though we were working very hard to run away from God, that he chases after us. Not that he's waiting for us to please him. Right? The, the gospel disrupts us spiritually. And we need our complacent spirituality disrupted. 
You know, it is so easy to fall into going through the motions, to open up the word and look at it as informational or just like, hey, you know, I'm just going to do this, <laughs> whatever. I'm going to read randomly and I'm not really going to listen to what the scripture says. You know, it was said of um, Richard Nixon, who was a Quaker. A lot of people don't know that because uh, he, he didn't look in any way like a Quaker, uh, his life and practices were, were not Quakery at all, and, uh, and one, of the, one of the people close to him, when asked about that, said, well, he never let his faith bother him too much, <laughs> right? I fear that, that too much of the time, we want a faith, we want a gospel, we want a God that just doesn't bother us too much. You know, nice addition, lifts me up when I'm down, I run into a problem, I can pray, but doesn't challenge me. A lot of the time, when we come across, especially those who follow Christ, when we come across a bit of scripture that's pointed, maybe, maybe shows us part of God that, that's hard for us to accept or we don't like or, or a command that we don't want to follow, we're like, you know, I don't want to believe that about God. I also don't want to stop doing that thing. So I'm sure there's some cultural background that explains all this away. All right, that was a close one. Right? We, we don't want a God who's going to challenge us, who's going to disrupt us, but we need that. Like, like, like a lot of us, just as an example, have kind of a greeting card Jesus in mind. That Jesus was sort of this serene guru guy who walked around saying nice things to nice people, being nice. Then like you look at the scriptures, people who were there, every gospel records him going into the temple losing his rag in the temple, grabbing a whip and hitting people with it, throwing tables over, right? And we're like, ah, going to flip the page. Where's Jesus going to say something inspirational? I'd like that better, you know? But for us to escape our complacency, for us to get growing again, to get moving again, to, to truly know God, because a God that we hold at arm's distance, a God that we don't allow to challenge us, is not God. And think of this. If you have a friend, that friend's going to disagree with you, right? If you have a God that's not allowed to disagree with you, you know you've got a made-up God. The gospel, by definition, disrupts us spiritually, and we need to receive the, disruption of the, the spiritual disruption of the gospel. Very closely related is that the gospel disrupts us ethically. And this is something that is heavily implied in the text. If we were to look at the ethics of ancient Ephesus, all right, like I'm, there's a couple of kids in here, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. The rites of Artemis, you know, the, the mother or virgin huntress goddess, like we have records of what they did for weeks on end at the rites of Artemis. Let me put it this way. Everything that R. Kelly, Jeffrey Epstein, Jerry Sandusky, and Michael Jackson are into was perfectly fine at the rights of Artemis for weeks on end in public, okay? It's, it's like that. Also, the way that you would have been treated if you were an enslaved person in ancient Ephesus, no rights. You weren't even considered worth, like, you, you didn't have rights. Women did not have rights in ancient Ephesus. The poor, very few. I mean, heck, if you were an infant that was unwanted, you know what they did with you? They took you outside the city, laid you on a rock to die of exposure to the elements. Now, when the gospel comes in, 
If you're an ancient Ephesian and you receive the gospel, you can't participate in the rites of Artemis anymore, can you? It's incredibly ethically disruptive. And the gospel comes in claiming this thing called human dignity, that everyone's made in the image of God. And Paul says things like, hey, women, equal to men. Hey, poor, just as important as the rich. Slave, just as important as free. These infants that you're exposing, those are humans too. Right? It ethically disrupts. You may not think that you need your ethics disrupted, but I'm going to try right now. Now, ethics, there's kind of two parts of it, right? There's the actual choices we make with our money, with our voting, with our speech, with our sexuality, so on and so forth. There's the, the actual choices you make, and then there's sort of the underlying purpose of your life. It, 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 often when we talk about ethics, we only talk about the choices we make, and we don't talk about what does it mean to live a good life? Like, what's the point of life? That's the main question of ethics. I'm going to try and convey something that I found very impactful. I was reading a, uh, a book on Catholic social teaching, and there was an essay in it by John Paul II. And he said something in there that just made me put the book down and think about it for, I'm still thinking about it, actually. He said this, we are encouraged to see life as a series of pleasures to be experienced instead of a work to be accomplished. Is there a more profound way to differentiate the pagan ethic, right? The point of life is pleasures to be experienced versus a Christian ethic. It's a work to be accomplished. This is a fundamental difference. And if I'm honest... I more often am operating on the pagan ethic. More often I'm like, oh, I have a bunch of stuff to do today. Oh, that's going to be fun. I look forward to that. Work, 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 work. Fun. Yay, this is the point of the work. Work, 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 work. Also fun, right? Like I'm living from pleasure to pleasure. And we try and plan our lives like that. Now, don't hear me say that if you're having fun, it's wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that is the fun the entire purpose? Is that your animating principle? Is that what you're living for? Because if you are, you're not only setting yourself up for disappointment, you're also setting yourself up for fruitlessness. You're setting yourself up to find yourself in the doldrums because that gets old. It's not sustainable. Instead, we need to approach life. We need our ethics disrupted. We need to switch that operating system to seeing our lives, that the point of them is a work to be accomplished, that God has called you to something, whether that's through your vocation, through your family relationships, or something else altogether. God has work for you. And the choices that you make, the ethical choices that you make, are driven by what you understand your point to be. Does that make sense? It's kind of like... Um, there was a, a guitar player named Les Paul, and there's a guitar named after him. Right? I think he may have designed it, but he was one of the great geniuses of music. He, he invented a lot of the recording technology and stuff like that that's still used today. Now, when his career was on the rise in the late 40s, uh, he got in a bad car accident, and his, his right arm was totally shattered, and that all they could do, they couldn't rebuild his elbow. 
So they would have to permanently set his arm in one position. And so, you know, the most natural one is, I guess, this partly bent thing. So you can kind of, and he says, no, 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 I don't want that. He told the doctors, fuse my arm at a perfect 90 degree angle. You don't know why? Because that's playing position. He's like, yeah, there's inconvenience that comes with this. I'm aware. There's a lot of limitations. That's, it's good for one thing, this, right? But for him, the, the, the choice to make was based on the work he had to do to play music. That was his work, and that was more important than whatever inconvenience he was going to encounter from that. And it never got fixed, by the way. If we understand our lives as a work to be accomplished instead of a series of pleasures to be experienced, how does that impact the sexual choices we make, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we approach our work or our recreation? Instead of viewing like, hey, my job is an interruption to what I really want to do, to look at it as, hey, that's part of what God has called me to accomplish in this life. But you know, it's, it's not just the spiritual and ethical disruption we need to receive, but our, our, our text today, it highlights another really important one, and it's more important than it's going to sound at first. The gospel disrupts economics. In ancient Ephesus, the temple, as I said, was a huge economic driver. The priesthood made their money off of it. The silversmiths and other people who made like Artemis junk were, were making money off of it. The temple prostitutes depended on it. Tons of tradesmen did. It was, it was incredibly economically disruptive as the, the gospel began to, began to supplant paganism. And, and, and that is as it should be. Now, some of you are like, this doesn't sound very spiritual. You're talking about economics, right? But economics is incredibly spiritual. Economics has an impact over all of our lives. Number one uh, stressor for couples that lead to divorce, money. What occupies our thoughts, like a lot of the time, worries about money. What are you going to spend most of your waking hours as an adult doing? Working, making money, right? It's also like in the West, it's, it's part of how we measure people. Quality of life studies, what are they measuring? Money, that's right. Well, net worth, think of how weird that is. Net worth, the worth of a human being in a number. Or you say, hey, they're doing well. Look at the house, look at the car, look at the bank account, right? They may be a wreck in other ways. They may be a oozing sore of a human being, but they're doing well. It matters greatly. And, and the Bible talks about money all the time. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Another way to put that is your wallet is your heart. Okay? You want to see what you love? Look where your money goes. Think about it. Money is how the desires of your heart are projected into the world to get the things that you love. Right? You're like, oh gotta have that prana pants. Those, those prana pants are gonna make it all right. You know, how much is it? All right, it's like $300 or something like that. Are they? Prana, no. No, they're not. Prana's and tail. I forget. Anyway, clothes cost a lot. But you're like, 
okay, if I do this, 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 carry the one side. You're like, you're planning, you're thinking about it, you're dreaming of it, you order it, you're like, yes, come to me. I sent my money out, now the desire of my heart comes back. Money is central. And we are far too complacent about our economic lives, right? First of all, there's the, the, the easy peace that we make with economic systems, right? I knew he was a commie. Get out of here, quick. No, I'm not a commie. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the economic systems into which we have very, e that we very easily fallen are, don't have huge problems and don't raise difficult questions that Christians have to answer. Like, look, if, if, you, if you were to build an economy based on the gospel and, and the scriptures, would you have ours? Like, would you have a system where the wealthier people buy things that are made by people who are two clicks above slavery, like starvation wages, so that they can have more stuff that they're going to throw away? Seems odd, doesn't it? Seems like at least worth asking the question, don't disrupt my buying $30 jeans, I need them. Keep it quiet, greatest Walmart of the Americans. We're far too complacent and far, far too unthoughtful about how we participate in an economy that has some really questionable practices. Huh. I'm aware that there is no such thing as a perfect economy. I am. But if the gospel doesn't disrupt us economically on something so central as economics, right? I have to ask, are, are we keeping God at arm's length? Or are we receiving that disruption? Are we going to allow ourselves just to get sucked up into the systems of the world without question, without thinking about it? We're also too complacent with our own personal greed. I am. Did you know that the middle class, both in terms of percentage of income and absolute numbers, gives less to charity than the poor? That's weird, isn't it? It's almost like we have a problem. <laughs> it's, it's almost like we're far too in love with money. It's almost like we, we just kind of unquestioningly say, build our lives around, like, how do I get the money? And then I feed my pleasure, education, not education, entertainment and recreation and all, and all those things are fine, but we unquestioningly fall into a complacent pattern of greed that if the gospel uh, were to hit home, would disrupt. The gospel is a redemptive disruption to, to our spirituality, to our ethics and our economics. We need to receive the gospel's, dis gospel's disruption. C.S. Lewis once wrote, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you could do, understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The gospel is a redemptive disruption. It's a living relationship with the living God. 
Instead of resisting that disruption, let's receive it. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would bring us out graciously of our complacency, that you would give us renewed vitality and growth in Christ, that you would give us the courage, the honesty uh, to, to let ourselves be disrupted by the message of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.